Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. My name's Mark Littlewood. I'm the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. And it's a great privilege to welcome a good friend of the IEA uh, on a topic that the IEA has spent some considerable time discussing over, well, I didn't say the last few years, but actually over the 60-plus years of our existence, uh, I think. And let me just tell you how the format's going to work. I'm going to introduce our speaker. Uh, he'll speak for something in the region of 25 minutes or so. I will then bound back onto stage and take questions from you all. A plea at the outset, really appreciate it if the questions are actually on the topic we're discussing rather than what otherwise might be in your mind, so please bear that in mind. Uh, so the topic of government spending is uh, what we're going to be addressing today. As I say, a matter the IEA has dealt with over many, many years and a tricky one for governments of all stripes. Uh, no government's managed to run a budget surplus since 2001. Uh, spending's at an all-time high, very high even in, in peacetime as a proportion of GDP, and taxes are at a high level as well. Even though everybody looks back to the coalition government and talks about austerity, actually reductions in real terms in government spending were very minor. So to share with what's uh, on his mind and how he's going to tackle this uh, enormous uh, challenge, uh, dilemma and potentially opportunity, let me introduce Simon Clark, currently the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Simon's been the Conservative Member of Parliament for Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland since the 2017 general election and has previously served as Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury and Minister of State for Regional Growth and Local Government. So please give a very, very warm welcome to the Right Honourable Simon Clark MP. Simon. Well, thank you, Mark, for that uh, introduction and your, your welcome here uh, today. It's a particular pleasure to be giving this speech at the IEA, somewhere where I've enjoyed many bracing events over the years. Mark and uh, his team here always deliver an atmosphere of genuine, genuine intellectual question questioning and questing, where the very laudable goal is the real-life application of political theory. And it's no surprise to me that so many IEA alumni have gone on to do such great things at the Treasury. Now, Margaret Thatcher, of course, was a great fan of the IEA. In fact, her archive is peppered with references to lunches and dinners here. And oh, to be a time-travelling fly on the wall, uh, because, of course, I understand she said if IEA founder Anthony Fisher and his first two directors, Ralph Harris and Arthur Selden, that they were the few, but they were right, and they saved Britain. Although, in the same breath, she said to have observed that while the cocks may crow, it's the hen that lays the eggs. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, friends, we can all agree that the last two years will come to represent a unique period in the history of this country, certainly economically. The good news is that we now have a strategy in place for living with COVID and have begun to leave behind some of the extraordinary challenges of that time. There is, of course, a continuing cost-of-living challenge, with global supply chain disruption and higher energy prices adding to inflation around the world. The government recognises the pressure that people are facing on household finances, including particularly on energy bills, which is why the Chancellor took the action he did back in February. We're also painfully aware of the horrific scenes in Ukraine, which are affecting our daily lives in many ways. 
it's absolutely right that the UK should be providing the support that we are to Ukraine, as well as to those seeking refuge from the war. But there is, and there will be, a further impact on living costs for households here. As the Chancellor said, the steps we've taken to sanction Russia are not going to be cost-free. But as he also said, I am never going to shirk away from my responsibility to make what are difficult but ultimately the right decisions to ensure that this country has economic security both today and into the future. And that's the theme he developed in detail in last week's spring statement. You will have seen the details of his tax plan, which takes further immediate steps to ease pressures on the cost of living by cutting taxes on a typical employee by over £330 in the year from July and fuel duty down by 5p per litre. It also crucially sets out the vision for a lower tax economy, including cutting taxes on business investment and for the first time in a long time, our commitment to cut income tax from 2024. However, funding this plan and being prepared for any further shocks will require us to continue to take a disciplined approach to the public finances. We have to be at least prepared for the economy and public finances to worsen and for the cost of borrowing to rise. In the next financial year, we're forecast to spend £83 billion on debt interest, the highest on record and nearly four times what we spent last year. I'll come on to the detail of the numbers in due course, but if you remember just one fact from my remarks today, please make it that one. Given the challenging overarching context, it is doubly incumbent on the British government to show that we're making the best use of the taxpayers' hard-earned money. That's my job as Chief Secretary. In fact, it's the reason this post was created 60 years ago, just a few years after the IEA itself, and this will be the focus of my remarks today. The case I want to make in the next half hour or so is that following an extraordinary period for government finances, a brief era of exceptionalism, there is now a quiet revolution underway at the Treasury and beyond to improve how we spend every penny of taxpayers' money on their behalf and to the best extent the government can in their best interests. Right across government, we're taking concrete steps to cut waste, improve efficiency, accelerate delivery and boost productivity, all under the traditional Treasury rubric of responsibility and sound money, values that I am determined to see lived even more fully right across Whitehall. I'm calling it a quiet revolution, but in truth, we could just as easily call it reform, renewal, or renaissance. The point is that we can and we must do things better, focusing on the how rather than the how much, and crucially, doing more for less. Before I come on to the detail of that, I want to say something about the policy context, the lessons of the pandemic, and my experience of last year's spending review. I know that the mechanics of government spending and financial management can seem esoteric and abstract, but how well we manage that spending makes a real difference to people's everyday lives. I'm in no doubt just how difficult a time this is for many households and how strongly people feel that the government must manage what is their money properly. Better spending means squeezing every ounce of value out of the pounds we deploy. On the one hand, delivering better outcomes. On the other hand, preserving the headroom to act if circumstances demand, with, incidentally, the benign side effect of a more dynamic, higher growth economy. The government has a number of critical missions on which we have to deliver. That's the imperative of economic recovery and renewal and the reform of public services. 
two of the driving ambitions behind last year's spending review. The Chancellor's vision, explored in detail in his recent May's lecture, is of a future economy built on a new culture of enterprise, in which we put our energies into three priorities, capital, people, and ideas, as a means of rejuvenating our national productivity and restoring hope and opportunity. And these priorities sit at the heart of his tax plan. While it's right that the private sector should, must, take the lead in this endeavour, we believe that government should create the conditions not determine the outcome, public spending will be key to engendering this new culture of enterprise, boosting investment in public services and infrastructure, improving education, and supercharging research and development. You've also all heard this phrase, levelling up, many times, which in the simplest terms means giving everyone, wherever they live, the opportunity to flourish. The recent white paper on levelling up was very clear about the economic dividends, which could be worth tens of billions of pounds each year. Crucially, as the white paper says, levelling up is about growing the economic pie everywhere and for everyone, not re-slicing it. We're also determined to seize the opportunities presented by our departure from the European Union. In an ever more competitive, and in some respects, a darkening world, I genuinely believe that if we get things right, we can make our economy more dynamic, and this country more prosperous, supporting new industries and reinvigorating older ones. Another key ambition is net zero, in which the UK can play a world-leading role. This is not only keeping consumer bills down, helping with the cost of living, but can represent one of the great commercial opportunities uh, in the period since the Industrial Revolution. I'm personally very proud the government has committed £30 billion for a new green industrial revolution, seeding green growth and spreading sustainable investment in technology, jobs all across our union, with the private sector playing a vital role in delivering these. In fact, under our COP26 presidency, 75 UK financial services firms, with assets of almost £19 trillion, have joined the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And going forward, we will make absolutely sure that financial management supports those long-term objectives, including economic re recovery, levelling up, and net zero. So that's the high-level policy context. But of course, we've also been navigating an unprecedented challenge in the form of the COVID pandemic. We all understand that this was a once-in-a-generation challenge, demanding a response that was unique, both in terms of scale and speed. At the Treasury, that meant, for instance, delegating more control to accounting officers in the relevant departments, providing departments with more generous spending envelopes, and turning around approvals quicker, all balanced, obviously, with appropriate precautions, such as always being satisfied that decisions met the standards set out in the document Managing Public Money, which guides public spending. There's been criticism of the perceived scale of fraud and waste during the pandemic, including from my former colleague, Lord Agnew, who made an invaluable contribution as a minister. I want to be clear, no fraud has been written off, and we're determined to recover as much of any fraudulently obtained funds as possible, with a dedicated task force at HMRC backed by £100 million. Any fraud against the public purse is too much. But the measures to minimise the risk of fraud and error were robust, and for the most part, they did their job. In the case of bounce-back loans, the extraordinary circumstances businesses faced at the time demanded the money was paid out far quicker than typical bank lending or government programmes. The checks that were put in place meant that 2.2 billion of what were deemed potentially fraudulent applications were blocked by lenders. 
Importantly also, businesses are repaying those loans. In 2020, a National Audit Office report contained an estimate that as much as 60% of the sums lent might never be recovered. In fact, nearly 80% of the loans are being repaid, have already been repaid, or involve using the support that we've provided uh, borrowers to pause or delay repayments while they get back on their feet. This will take time and effort, but where fraud is suspected, we will continue to do everything we can to claw back those funds. There have also been accusations of waste relating to the procurement of PPE and the vaccines programme. In the case of PPE, our focus was rightly on saving lives and protecting frontline healthcare workers, which is why we acted very quickly to secure and deliver over 18 billion items of PPE for the frontline. 97% of that equipment was deemed suitable for use, either in the NHS or in other non-medical settings. There was, and I'd argue there had to be, a change in our risk appetite. We carefully considered and then accepted the necessary risks. But the principles set out in managing public money continued to apply at all times, and the Department for Health and Social Care took decisions on the basis of sound commercial advice. As for the vaccine programme, the government took calculated risks to build a portfolio of vaccines. In fact, the UK was the first country in the world to approve and deploy the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines, a success which has saved tens of, tens of thousands of lives and has allowed the UK to be the freest major economy and society in the world two years after this crisis began. So, of course, there are things we could have done better, but given the circumstances and the unique need, I stand by the quality of our response. Going through something like the pandemic teaches you a lot. And if we're honest about it, we saw Whitehall at its best and also at its worst. On the plus side, it revealed the ability of government to move at speed and to act decisively where necessary. It also reminded us of the value of harnessing the best of the private sector and allowing it to the things that only the public sector can do. Here I'm thinking particularly of the Vaccines Task Force and the furlough scheme, both of which relied on the public and private sectors working hand in glove, resulting in countless lives and livelihoods being saved. The flip side of doing things at speed was that we had to prioritise. And as I say, that was a strategic decision. We're now strengthening our safeguards and taking action against those who tried to game the system. No country got this 100% right. We should always strive to do better. Of course we should. But that shouldn't mean we fail to acknowledge what we did achieve. The pandemic probably also showed us, of course, that some parts of Whitehall remain resistant to change. And that's Frankly, it's sometimes easier to expand the state than it is to remodel or to streamline it. But we're alert to that. The civil service headcount is up 23% since 2015-16 and up almost 7% in 2021 alone. Something that is impossible to justify long term and something that we're determined to reverse. As a starting point, government will ensure that resources focused on delivering frontline services and cutting bureaucracy by reducing the non-frontline civil service headcount to 2019-20 levels by 2024-25. Through a scrupulous focus on efficiencies, more streamlined processes and a better matching of our people to our priorities, we will bring the civil service headcount down to sustainable levels for the longer term. And this will be a key focus of the years leading to the next spending review. The reality is that some growth in the civil service was required to deliver Brexit and our COVID response. But over the next spending review, set to begin literally at the end of this week, 
I want to see headcount levels fall back towards where they were before what were very much out of the ordinary events. The fallout from the pandemic was, of course, naturally the defining context to last October's spending review. My first, and a challenge I had to complete following the reshuffle in just a few weeks. On a personal level, sitting at the helm of that process was an extraordinary experience. No one's ever going to call this a glamorous job. I don't get invited to many film premieres. But it is fundamental to the smooth working of government. The fact that I took over from Steve Barclay, who has himself made such an important contribution to improving government efficiency and delivery, was a real boon. I also want to thank and pay tribute to the many Treasury staff who helped to make the spending review happen. I'd been a Treasury Minister previously, but participating so closely in the spending <coughs> review gave me a newfound appreciation of the scale and complexity of government. And of course, it also reminded me that government spending isn't something that takes place in the form of neat punctuation points. Every decision must be taken in the context of previous decisions, which together, of course, have a cumulative impact. And which is why, by the way, maintaining fiscal discipline is so important. We certainly delivered a much greater focus on outcomes, efficiency and savings, <laughs> and record investment in reform public services involving, among many other things, the modernisation of the court system, the transformation of the welfare system, and a clear plan to ensure our National Health Service delivers on the enormous investment it is receiving. On that last point, our healthcare system is obviously a big priority for us. That's why we've allocated over 188 billion to DHSC in 24-25 at the spending review. And that's why we've introduced the health and social care levy, which makes available an additional 13 billion a year to support the NHS and to reform adult social care. There should be absolutely no doubt this government is giving the NHS the resources it needs. And with so much else, we're focused on doing things better with ambitious targets and metrics associated with our elected recovery plan and a health and care bill which will make the NHS less bureaucratic, more integrated and more accountable, freeing up time and resource for frontline care. Overall, the spending review allocations were ambitious, with total spending across all departments set to grow in real terms at 3.7% a year, on average over the Parliament, a cash increase of £150 billion a year. But, and this is vital, last awesome spending review marks the limit of fiscal expansion, the high watermark in our commitment to honour what we set out in our manifesto, and not a point from which anyone should expect us to go further. With so much frenetic activity in recent times, a good deal of it unprecedented. Where are we now, economically and fiscally? For one thing, debt is very high. This year it's set to pass £2.3 trillion, reaching 95.6% of GDP, the highest level as a percentage of GDP since the 1960s. Debt is forecast to fall over the medium term, but will remain significantly above pre-pandemic levels. And as you all understand very well, high debt leaves us vulnerable to shocks. A sustained one percentage rise in both inflation and interest rates would increase spending on debt interest by 21.1 billion by 26-27. Our sensitivity to debt interest spending is almost twice as high as it was in 2014. In 2021-2022, we spent £54 billion on debt interest, more than double the year before, more than the budget for schools. 
and we're already seeing higher costs. In January last year, the UK spent 1.6 billion on servicing our debt. This January, it spent 6.1 billion. So far this financial year, we spent 33.2 billion, or 80% more on debt interest than last year. And as I said earlier, in the next financial year, we're forecast to spend 83 billion pounds, the highest on record. So that's why we need to get debt down in the years to come. Not least, obviously, to rebuild space to safeguard the economy against future challenges, which is exactly the rationale behind our fiscal rules. And if we stick to that task, and we will, we can expect to be borrowing just 1.3% of GDP four years from now, down from 5.4% this year. The truth, plain and simple, is that we don't get to choose when history turns up. And the fact we've experienced two big shocks in such quick succession, wholly exogenous shocks, only goes to show that we could face another shock at any time, meaning in turn that we must be diligent in the way that we manage our public finances. The British public gets rid of those governments who lose their grip or who are perceived to lose their grip on the public purse and their right to do so. Now, there is, of course, important good news, which should give us quiet confidence. The UK saw the fastest growth in the G7 last year at 7.5%, and the economy returned to growth in January following the disruption caused by Omicron. The labour market has also been performing extremely well, with payroll employee numbers above pre-pandemic levels in all regions of the UK, and at a total of 29.7 million in February, a record high. Redundancies have also been at an all-time low of 68,000 in the three months to January this year. The progress we've made is the consequence of a deliberate economic policy. And that fact deserves to be acknowledged and recognised. And at the same time as all that, of course, we have to acknowledge there continues to be bumps in the road. Global supply chain disruption and high energy prices are adding to inflation around the world, including in this country, and help to explain the sharp rise in inflation we've seen above the 2% target in the UK in recent months. Inflation is now forecast to peak at 8.7% in the fourth quarter of this year, before falling below target in late 2023. The Independent Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England have begun to tighten monetary policy to return inflation sustainably to the 2% target. And people should be reassured that the committee do have a strong track record in achieving low and stable inflation. Importantly, we'll be guided by the updated Charter for Budget Responsibility, which is born of the belief that stable public finances are the foundation for building a stronger economy for the whole country, and the purpose of which is to set up the government's approach to managing the nation's finances openly so that the British people know that their money has been handled carefully. And looking ahead, the key message, as I'm happy to repeat time and time again, is that we want to protect the public and reform key public services while restoring fiscal discipline. As Chief Secretary, my entry remains very full, but frankly, I see that as an opportunity to support what I've called the quiet revolution. I'll continue shifting the focus back from the how much to the how, with relentless attention to the outcomes we deliver and the value we get for each pound. There will be new proactive initiatives to counter fraud, with an additional 24.7 million over three years to turn the existing government counter fraud function into a new public sector fraud authority which will hold government departments to account for their counter-fraud performance and help them to identify fraud and to seize fraudsters' money. And we'll be improving our financial management processes however and wherever we can. 
The Treasury will continue to work collaboratively with departments to ensure public money is used efficiently, with every pound spent providing value for money for the taxpayer. We've already reviewed the Green Book to improve our appraisal process, and we're now updating the Treasury approvals process in order to streamline our approach and deliver faster, better projects and programmes. I also want us to get better at forecasting. Given that public sector manages almost a trillion pounds of public spending a year, it's essential that we have the best information about what we plan to spend. Apart from anything, better forecasting means more allocation of money across government, making sure that public services are funded appropriately. The Treasury has a key role to play here. And we're working, for instance, on an improved forecasting framework, including detailed guidance to help improve the quality of forecasting across government and to ensure that the high standards the taxpayer expects are met. But we can't make this happen on our own. It really has to be a pan-Whitehall effort. The Quiet Revolution isn't, of course, simply about how we think about financial management, busy though we are in renewing that. It's also about a complex matrix of policy actions, which individually don't signify much, but which together add up to something very substantial. For one thing, it's time we got serious about reforming so-called arms-length bodies, or ALBs. In my view, there is a constant risk of mission creep, often disguised by ALBs not being attached to any specific government department. That needs to end, and I think there should be a high bar to establishing any more such bodies. We will shortly be launching a new programme of arms length body reviews, which will see savings come from a better use of property, reduced reliance on consultants, increased digitisation and greater use of shared services, as well as the use of benchmarking to drive efficiencies. Linked to that is what I'll call the curse of the contractor. If a department is going to commission outside contractors, and there is of course sometimes legitimate reason to do so, then there ought to be a commensurate reduction in headcount in that department. You cannot reasonably have both. Otherwise, what we end up with is a department that's not shrinking, but which has a semi-permanent cadre of highly paid contractors. On government property, there's fat to be trimmed. As we pivot rightly to making government more reflective of the country we serve, we're bringing the government into the regions and relocating 22,000 civil service roles from London by 2030. As we reduce our London headcount, we must also shrink our London property portfolio, using what we have better, thereby making further estate savings. And I want to praise Lord Agnew for his work as a minister to make progress on this. But we can and we should go further. Another area which has long been in need of reform is exit payments for staff leaving the public sector. Now, exit payments can play an important role in supporting employees and allowing public, public sector organisations to reform. But it is important payments are used in a fair and proportionate way and that value for money is delivered for the taxpayer. I'm leading a programme of work to ensure this is the case, working with colleagues across government to renegotiate some of the contractual terms that give rise to excessive exit payments. We're also looking to grip this issue more firmly at the centre of government by introducing additional controls over how staff exits are agreed. And we want to have consulted on and introduced a new controls process this year. The final area I'd flag for reform is how we manage infrastructure projects. Under plans set out by the Chancellor, the UK government's public sector net investment as a share of GDP is increasing to its highest sustained levels since the late 1970s. I want to ensure we have the systems in place to get the most out of that investment in our infrastructure. Project Speed, for instance, was set up by the Prime Minister to deliver infrastructure better, faster and greener. 
The HMT-led task force has focused on accelerating specific priority infrastructure projects and resolving systemic barriers to infrastructure delivery. Project Speed has already seen considerable progress made across major infrastructure projects, and we have regular ministerial stock takes on this. The A66, a road close to my heart, was originally scheduled to take over 15 years, including 10 years of construction. Project Speed intervention identified ways to save up to 50% of time in the planned construction process, cutting this down from 10 to 5 years through innovative solutions such as standardised modular and off-site design and construction. The Prison Places programme, for its part, has benefited from an increased focus on standardised prison design and inclusion in the new permitted development rights reforms, enabling a shorter planning and design phase. Effective use of modern methods of construction is expected to save up to 20% on construction time. In the case of HS2, meanwhile, the Prime Minister has been clear it has to be delivered more efficiently and cost-effectively, and there is now increased ministerial oversight, transparency and accountability for this whole project. The government has also volunteered to undertake a public investment management assessment with the IMF. This is the IMF's key tool for assessing infrastructure governance over the full investment cycle, and we will engage with the IMF to assess the UK's public investment process and understand what more we can do to deliver large, complex capital projects and programmes better. The final thing I want to do before I conclude my remarks is to briefly share the hidden good news story about efficiency, delivery and greater productivity across Whitehall. According to the Cabinet Office, more than 3.4 billion was saved in 2020-2021 through successful efforts to improve efficiency across Whitehall, maximising value for taxpayers and putting more money back into vital public services, with significant savings made through cutting losses from fraud and debt, roughly 1.9 billion, improved procurement decisions, around 1.4 billion, and more effective use of digital services, just over 140 million pounds. I'm determined, as I hope I've demonstrated, that the Treasury should play its part and do everything it can to enhance its financial management and to seek out opportunities to streamline government, guided as ever by the imperative to do more for less and to focus on the how, not the how much. But there's a whole panoply of other things that government departments, including the Treasury, can and should be exploring. Or supporting collaboration across government so that we can more effectively deliver cross-cutting priorities like tackling crime and levelling up. That's the thinking behind joint programmes such as the 4.8 billion levelling up fund, removing silos to meet local infrastructure needs, and the beating crime plan, supporting cross-government action to reduce crime and re-offending. It's also why we've launched initiatives such as the Shared Outcomes Fund, which supports projects that cut across multiple government departments, and to which the spending review gave an additional £200 million of funding. Among those projects are a pilot for a national surveillance network that uses the latest DNA sequencing technology and environmental sampling to improve the detection and tracking of foodborne pathogens and antimicrobial resistance. There's also a new project to deliver gigabit-capable services to the hardest-to-reach parts of the UK via water mains, improving digital connectivity and bridging the digital divide. I'm certain the new Cabinet Committee on Efficiency and Value for Money, chaired by the Chancellor, of which I'm the Deputy Co-Chair and which meets for the first time next week, will also make a big difference, focusing ministers' attention on driving efficiency, effectiveness and economy in government spending so that every pound of taxpayers' money is directed towards delivering the highest quality services at the best value. Our drive to cut waste through this committee will save a total of £5.5 billion, with the money being pumped directly back into public services. 
Better efficiency and delivery are also about simple things, like implementing modern methods of construction, which I've already mentioned in relation to the construction of prisons. Construction sector productivity has underperformed globally for the past 25 years, in part because of low levels of technology adoption, which means the sector remains very labour-intensive. Modern methods of construction could help to unlock that. According to McKinsey, speeding up construction by as much as 50% and cutting costs by 20%. That's why the government announced they would set up a task force looking specifically at how modern methods of construction can improve house building, backed by £10 million of seed money, uh, which was delivered at Spring Budget 2021. Finally, I think we need to be relentless in our search for best practice and new ideas, be it from other departments, the private sector, or indeed from other countries. The likes of Estonia are often cited as shining examples of what 21st century good, efficient, digitally savvy government can look like, with 99% of all public services available online 24-7. E-Estonia, the government's central portal, relies on an infrastructure that enables an e-services ecosystem, one characterised by security, flexibility and the ability to integrate its different parts. There's no shame in looking to others for ideas. The shame is in not doing it, and that applies across government and across all sectors. It's a fact, for example, that the Department for Education is really good at building schools. So what can other government departments learn from that? The answers are out there. We just have to make the effort to find them. Let me end with one final thought. In a major speech on the economy back in June 2020, the Prime Minister said, and I quote, that this COVID crisis is also the moment to address the problems in our country that we've failed to tackle for decades. I believe that applies as much to my brief as Chief Secretary as it does to any more conventional department. Because we really do have the opportunity to do things differently, with money saved and spent better, and countless lives improved as a consequence. What will success look like 10 years from now? It will mean we've honoured our commitments around dealing with the consequences of the pandemic. More police, more doctors, more nurses. We will have tackled the backlogs and levelled up in a way that people can really see in their own community, something which will be more and more conspicuous as the decade goes on. We will have re-emphasised the traditional treasury values of responsibility and sound money, celebrated those values and be living them ever more fully across Whitehall. We will have combined all of that with a more nimble and imaginative state, having adopted an enabling approach, trusting people and communities to make the right decisions for themselves and freeing up business to deliver. Having achieved all of that, we'll be in a place where we're meeting our fiscal rules and cutting taxes, which remains the single best incentive to drive growth. <clears throat> I am personally deeply committed to supporting the quiet revolution that I've described. A revolution motivated by the desire to improve lives across this country. A revolution of a thousand small acts. A revolution behind the scenes that very few people may notice, but whose effects will be felt every day by millions. Thank you very much indeed.